The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Right now in FAST, a CPI sigh of relief. Stocks keeping the New Year good vibes going after the latest sign that inflation is cooling. Will the kickoff of earnings season tomorrow take the steam out of the bulls or kick this rally into high gear? Plus, grumpy activist trying Nelson Peltz making his case on CNBC for what is wrong with Disney. Why the Fox deal was a disaster and why bringing him on the board will help boost the bottom line. Should Iger say yes? We'll debate that. And later, it's ladies' night for our latest acronym reveals. Karen's cooking up some tasty trades while Julie Beal's casting in the small cap pond. And then there is this. That, my friends, is Miss El Salvador. And she is wearing a Bitcoin dress and a beauty pageant. We've got the full story on this one coming up. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the NASDAQ market site. We've got a full house tonight here on the desk. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. We start off with the Goldilocks reading on inflation, the latest CPI data giving the markets exactly what they wanted, sending the Dow up more than 200 points. And NASA continue, continuing its rally for a fifth straight day, its longest winning streak since last July. The S&P flirting with that flat line, but did manage to end the day in the green. Meantime, interest rates pulled back as investors bet the Fed may not be so aggressive with its next rate hike. Yields on two-year treasuries falling to their lowest level since October. But can this momentum continue as investors shift their attention from the economy to earnings. Q4 reporting season kicking off in just over 12 hours with J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, City results due out before the bell tomorrow. How are we set up, Guy? That's what the bulls now have to prove themselves, right, in the form of earnings. Okay, so the CPI, I think it gave, if you're bearish, it gave you something. If you're bullish, it gave you something. If you think the Fed genius, everybody got a little bit of something today. Now they're back in the rearview mirror and probably rightly so. Now it comes down to earnings and we've been saying it for a while. Earnings are what matters. And earnings are going to disappoint. We're going to hear from Jamie Dimon in the commentary what he thinks. So as we start in earnest and earnings season, this is what matters. Again, more and more of these strategists are ratcheting down their earnings numbers. More and more people are saying the multiple currently being paid for the market is too high in this environment. So you can say all you want about a 6.5% CPI and what it means. It always comes down to earnings, and I think they're going to disappoint. Yeah. Tim, yesterday I said, what do you do? You said you would fade this rally, fade the move higher here. So did you at all? Did you? Uh, I sold some calls on a couple names that have had a big run. Where uh, you know, and We can also talk about how Vol has collapsed today and has an 18 handle, which seems crazy to me. But, but I, 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 yes, I think we've had a 5.5% a run uh, since December 28th. I think we've had a lot of good news, and I think uh, I kind of agree with the setup here. But the, the part of this that, that I think we've raised this question, 
question. How can consensus be right if everybody's calling for a devastating end of the first quarter when cash levels are where they are, where uh, certainly professional investors and I think a lot of retail investors have a lot of protection out there uh, that they've taken. And I, you know, I, I look at that. I, I look at what went on in bond markets around the world. It's kind of interesting today because we certainly saw where yields uh, moved lower and tested really kind of that uptrend. So arguably, we've now actually gone through that uptrend, which was holding. Uh, and then I look over to Japan, and I know people don't really look at JGBs, the Japanese 10-year benchmark, but um, got over 50 basis points, which is what Kuroda started doing three weeks ago. The yen collapsed. The dollars, excuse me, the yen rallied 2.5%. The dollar continues to fall. And these are things that are very important, and they're actually good for equities. And, and to that extent, I think that was positive. Yeah. Karen, you also sold some calls given I the did. big rally. I did. Well, we'll get to it a little bit. I sold some J.P. Morgan calls. I hate when the banks run up into earnings. That's 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 been sort of a high bar for them, particularly given the, the move that has been really extraordinary. So uh, I did sell some calls. I think that the market seemed to be up a couple times on this news, that CPI would be lower than we thought, lower than we thought. And that for, that's been sort of the calling card for the rally for the week. Right. Now that happened, I don't know, I, I sort of feel like uh, that's priced in. And to Guy's point, okay, now let's see what companies are really earning. Let's see what the bank, both JP, uh, JP Morgan and Bank of America, have to say about how the economy looks and how the consumer looks. Market should have been up so much more today. And when you think about just the skepticism that, the, that just pervades, the, you know, most Even the given the rally well, well, To Tim's number? point, think, well, no, what I'm saying, think about yields. Think about where the 10-year is, right? Think about where the dollar is. It's collapsing. It's on, the Dixie is on its way to 100, right? It's going to be trading at six, seven-month lows in the next few days. And I just thought the fact that, yeah, we were talking about this on, like, our noon call today. It looked like a really green day, except that the S&P was up 40 basis points. You know, there was no real leadership, in my opinion, not anything that said, you know, you got to go in and you got to chase this into earnings season. And I'll just say this about the banks. I mean, this is a really horrible setup if you're bullish on banks. I mean, J.P. Morgan, fantastic. It's up 38 percent from its October lows when it was trading at multi-year lows into that Q3 earnings print that wasn't as bad as expected. Jamie Dimon changes his tune a little bit on the macro. I kind of like tweaked it a little bit, but that's not a great setup. for. Have you ever seen a good setup for banks? And I asked that question. How long have we been doing this for? Um, Uh, I, I think since April 2009, since the bottom. So yeah. you say well, I've been selling the bank since then, too. Well, no, I, you know, I mean, no, there are times. I mean, like, I guarantee you that in early October of last year, I was not saying to sell the banks because you were. The set- what's that? You were at 102. Absolutely. So you were I, saying sell J.P. Morgan. It's going lower. No. I remember it very clearly. No, I'd be surprised. Yeah. 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 Know me well enough. I don't. I don't press things at levels like well, that. I, I totally disagree. We'll look at the All right, look at the I'll give you the day. Totally yeah. yeah. oh, we have a news alert that we want to get to. Uh, okay, there you go. News alert here on new SEC charges in the crypto space. Kate Rooney's got the latest. Kate. Hey, Melissa. So the SEC is charging two crypto firms with allegedly selling and offering unregistered securities. So this is for Gemini, which is run, founded by the Winklevoss twins, and Genesis. These two firms had teamed up on one of those high-interest-bearing products. It was called Earn. It offered about 8% yield for customers. On the back end, they were lending that out to hedge funds. And the SEC saying that this product should have been registered as a security. Gary Gensler in a statement saying that today's charges build 
on previous actions to make clear the marketplace and investing public uh, that crypto lending products and their other intermediaries need to comply with time-tested securities laws. I mentioned the Winklevoss twins here of Facebook and uh, social network fame. Genesis, meanwhile, is a lending firm, one of the first really market makers and lenders in this space, shut down a few months ago as a result of what's happened with FTX. Uh, but one of the big lenders here, they teamed up, as I mentioned, on that interest-bearing product. These two firms have been fighting back and forth over this earned product. Uh, but the latest here from the SEC, we've had a lot going back, uh, back and forth between these two firms when it comes to this. But uh, an action here and a statement we've got from Gary Gensler. Uh, Melissa, back to you. Kate, it seems kind of odd. It seems like too little too late. I mean, how long has this program been going on? There were other firms that were also uh, engaging in similar practices in terms of, of lending out, you know, offering customers to lend out their crypto for a high yield return. And here we are, the SEC doing this after this program is effectively shut down. Yeah, absolutely too little too late. If you look at in terms of customer protection, uh, there's now a class action lawsuit against Gemini because about a billion dollars or so of customer money from Gemini is locked up in that lending product. So this does not prevent anybody from getting into the securities contract. It is sort of retroactive in this case. If anything, it seems to be a warning shot to other crypto companies that are probably already on high alert based on what's happened Uh, in the lending space, but absolutely. And uh, I should also mention Genesis, that lending company is also owned by Digital Currency Group, which is the same parent company that owns the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is a publicly traded investment vehicle, GBTC. And so there's been a lot of talk about what this means uh, for that investment product itself. All right. Kate, thanks. Kate Rooney of the very latest on that. Um, Let's get back to the the, the fight. CPI. I know. <laughs> I mean, I, we, we, we got cage match going on here. To, well, you know, yes, we do. We to, oh, I we think do. I think we will. I, I don't know. October 10th or 11th. Check it out. Oh, October 10th or 11th. Yes. You've got a date. Interesting. 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 Getting back Wait, to that. But, but uh, oh, what, what do you want? You no, want I, I mean, okay. To continue to litigate this? This is going to be fun. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think it's going to be fun. Be good, on, but, but if things are very nuanced, so on that particular day, then he could have changed his stance. Yes, yes, That's the challenge. And I agree that he was bearish well before that. Yeah. Well, I, can I let's yeah, let's talk a, a little bit about <laughs> some anything. other earnings. I think it's important to keep moving forward. I was always the peacemaker <laughs> of my family. And, and I think you have a dynamic here. If you looked at Taiwan Semi. OK, so the most important, I think, semiconductor company in the world uh, was up at one point intraday, almost nine percent, closed almost up seven percent. Uh, the message that they give, they largely de-risked 2023. Mm-hmm. They, they essentially had guided lower and they they hit that and maybe even beat upon it. They said 24. They're starting to see the cycle turn. What we say about semiconductors all the time is that you're buying them six to nine months ahead of when things actually do get better. Right. So if you look at this and if you look at the SMH, which is that ETF that tracks the semiconductors, that's up 18 percent versus the S&P since October. That's actually broken its downtrend, where if you look at the triple Qs against the S&P, it continues to make new lows. Who's right? I don't know. But in earnings land, that was today and that was pretty constructive. So can I can I posit this? Your show, it's your show. <laughs> that's true. I can posit anything posit I like. Um, perhaps the markets have done the same thing, though, to some extent. I mean, maybe maybe that October low reflects the earnings reset that we are about to have already. And because think of think of what has changed since October. Where are rates now? Where's Lower. the dollar now? Lower. Right. Where's inflation now? Right. Where Lower. Lots of things are down. Can I pause it back to your sure. posit? Go ahead. So I would posit. submit in an environment where things have never been more cloudy for corporate America or corporations worldwide. How in the world 
Can Taiwan Semi come out and say, yeah, it's going to be a miserable first half, but somehow magically they are clairvoyant into the second half? You explain to me that. They have visibility into the second half. Of the day. No, they don't. They've bought themselves three or four months without question. But there's no way they know what's going to happen. No shot that they know it's going to happen in the back half of the year. Just my opinion. That's okay, my so that's, positive that's back Taiwan, to you. But that's Taiwan Semi in terms of 2024, or the back half of 2023. But how about the markets? And the October low reflecting the earnings reset. We're playing that we ping pong here now, you and I, because I'll play the game if you want. I'm sure there are other people that have some thoughts. So, Karen, for yeah. instance. <laughs> no, is there, well, I mean, why don't we think question. that perhaps we've already okay. discounted that? But where are we point? from that October low? We're a lot, right? We're it's a different yeah. risk reward now. Right, right. It's moved a lot. So, I, I mean, if there was asymmetry then, I think, you know, now it's a different equation. So I don't, I don't know what's priced in. And I always come back to it's not a monolith. Some companies are going to do fine. Some are going to miss. And I would posit that you, you He's repositing. In, well, no, but we've been positing about the Fed <laughs> and possibly the dollar and a lot of macro, but we haven't been positing on the ground up, which is really companies themselves. And so this next move is really where I think we're going to get to the next part of our conversation, which is that the earnings adjustments haven't necessarily been made. It's been easy to adjust to the stock market as a monolith and say it's not worth the multiple as a, as a group that it was because rates were here. Rates are now here. You should pay less. Now let's listen to the companies because on an earnings by earnings basis, I think they're going lower. All right. Our next guest warns there is too much optimism heading into earnings season. Peter Bofar is the chief investment officer at Bleakley Financial Group. He's also a CNBC contributor. So you would posit, I would imagine, Peter, <laughs> <laughs> that we are still too high on a multiple basis on, on the broader markets, con, you know, considering what we are about to get into earnings season. Well, I think pendulums swing in the other direction. They don't just stop in the middle. And if you look at a multiple perspective on a P-E ratio, uh, where we topped out at, what, 22 times, and now we're about 17, 18 times, uh, I just don't see that as being a trough valuation, uh, particularly with rates where they are and the earnings trajectory that we're seeing, which is down. Uh, so I'm looking at a multiple that's going to bottom out at 13, 14 times. Now, we can all debate what earnings that will be priced off, but uh, I don't think we're close uh, to pricing in an inexpensive market, which usually typifies the end of a bear market. Higher for longer, Peter. People are discounting it. It's in your notes. I agree. You've said it for a while. That's been the missing piece that I don't think the market is fully taking into consideration. I agree. When, when you think about, call it a 15-year period, where borrowing costs were very low, and then all of a sudden you get this vertical move in interest rates, that every month that progresses from here there is somebody refinancing their debt at a much higher interest rate than that of, of the loan that is maturing. So each month, each quarter that progresses from here, we're, cash flow is going to be more eaten up by interest expense. And we know that leverage and credit have been a main driver of economic activity and less so natural savings. So as this cost of capital just remains elevated, I mean, just by keeping the Fed funds rate even at current levels, for a longer period of time creates its own downdraft on the economy, again, because of all the debt that's out there, priced at a much lower rate than current market rates that will then be refinanced in current market rates. 
You know, Peter, much has been made about what the companies are going to be saying in terms of guidance, but we, we have had some remarkable changes in just the past, you know, month or two in terms of where um, where rates have come, uh, where the dollar is, where inflation is, where inflation expectations are now. Do you think that perhaps we're, we're too on one side of the boat in terms of anticipating that the guidance will be so horrific this time around? Well, it's a good question. Um, Maybe, but I, I think the, the, the profit margin story is really the next focus here. If you look at two of the main drivers of profit margin expansion in the last 15 years, outside of the corporate income tax cut in 2017, was lowered interest expense and low wage costs. And that has clearly shifted to the opposite side. So I'm actually thinking that the U.S. economy, or I should say the global economy this year, may actually be okay relative to current expectations because of the reopening of China. But profit margins, on the other hand, could be a real depressant. I mean, profit margins 20 years ago averaged above and below around 6%. We're twice that. There is a lot of mean reversion in profit margins that could be enough to clip earnings, even if revenue growth doesn't really change that much, even though I do think for those domestically-based companies, you'll see softer revenue growth than that internationally. Peter, it's Karen. Thanks for coming on. So you talked about the pendulum of earnings swinging. It was too high in the low 20s. Where we are right now, is, is, it doesn't stop here. Where do you think it would stop? I, I still think 13, 14 times is where it's going to eventually end up. I mean, just look where interest rates are at 15-year highs. Uh, to me, that just augurs for a, a, a lower multiple. And, and I think we'll eventually get there. Again, the key part of that is where, what earnings you're going to price that off. But uh, I, I think we're still, and, and that's just the P ratio. I mean, the price to sales ratio on the S&P 500 is pretty much the same where it was in March 2000. So we can use other valuation metrics that still equate to a very expensive market, notwithstanding the pullback from the highs. Peter, always great to get your take. Peter Bookvar of Thanks, Bleakly. Melissa. Um, Dan, which sectors do you think are most vulnerable? Well, first things first on that multiple. You know, okay. it, it, it's interesting that, you know, the 10-year average is like 17 in the S&P or something. And so, like, I, I guess we, we kind of got when we were, like, really kind of gloomy maybe at other periods when I was selling banks at the lows or something like that. <laughs> you know, we're like, ah, you know, where, where do we bottom out normally 13, 14 times? Yeah. And then you're kind of looking at what, like, a, like a trough earnings should be or whatever. And that's just not going to happen. Guy, you made that point a couple times over the last few weeks or so. So I, let's just take the average. For, you know what I mean? Let, let's just take 16 or 17 times. And I guess the point that S&P earnings are still expected to be, you know, north of $220. We've had this conversation a lot. It won't take a whole heck of a lot of just a kind of economic malaise. I don't even mean like the hard landing scenarios of just, you know, some sort of recession that we're not going to know until we're the, on the other side of it to get earnings closer to $200 times 17. It gets you down five or 600 points on the S&P 500 from here, you know, below those October lows. So I know we're going to be obsessed with those October lows for a long time. I just think it's important to recognize the fact that, you know, it seems like everybody's convinced that the first half of this year, there's going to find a bottom in the stock market. That makes me a little bit nervous because that consensus is here. And we're not going to know, you know, what the multiple on what the earnings are and where they trough until way after the fact. Coming up, airlines taking off. American leading the charge after raising Q4 guidance. So is there still a lot of runway left for this trade? Plus Nirvana for Carvana today. Shares surging nearly 50%. But one of our traders isn't feeling so enlightened. The moves are making in the name when Fast Money returns. 
Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. American Airlines topping the tape today. Shares soaring nearly 10% after the carrier hiked Q4 revenue and profit estimates. The company citing strong demand and higher fares for the holiday quarter upgrade. The stock is up 32% already since the start of the year. And it's not the only airline seeing strength. United's up more than 36%. JetBlue, 25%. Delta, 21%. What do you do, Tim? You trade airline stocks aggressively, but I think you you have more room to go. I I believe these airline stocks have lagged, and I think you have a dynamic here. It is acronym week, (laughs) by the way, on Fast Money. um, uh, And and if you listen to these airline companies, they're going to talk about a revenue profile that is above 2019 with capacity that's significantly lower than 2019. Airline stocks, for as long as we've known them, have been traded on the analyst community, the investors community, confidence in their ability to be efficient or not. You always assume that the minute they have it good, um, they throw out too much capacity, they kill their own business, and they kill their own multiple. Right now, the multiples are, 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 uh, well, on a profitability basis, they're actually where they were. They're better than they were in 2019. The multiples are very high right now because they didn't earn any money in the last six months, and they now start to earn money. You stay in this airlines trade. Again, United up 35% in seven sessions. You don't have to buy them tomorrow, and I think you probably have to pull back some of this, but the move is higher on multiple. The move is higher in profitability because demand's not going away overnight. Your favorite, it's not an acronym, is it? RASM. <laughs> RASM. Um, Revenue. Revenue per available seat mile. Up 24% versus 2019. I mean, that's just astonishing. Amazing. That just speaks to the operating at less capacity versus 2019. 10% well. lower capacity. Selling tickets uh, I wonder if these domestic carriers, you know, Southwest had a rough couple weeks um, and, the, yeah. and has not had this sort of rally um, that these others and, and you know they're on uh, up 30 25 percent across the board and this one's up 10 percent of the year I wonder if like there's M&A that comes back into this thing because if you think about you know Southwest the knock is that just the systems and stuff are, is there another carrier is it is it JetBlue or something like that where they can kind of maybe realize you know I don't know some quick efficiencies that um, would change the narrative of the story because this is not a good one right now yeah but to Tim's point they are trading vehicles he's been spot on the move in Delta over the last week, specifically, you know, 33 to 39 is interesting. Now you have to sell where you're getting off this plane. 
See what I did there? Interesting. Very and clever. The, and in terms of Delta, I think the answer is. Hopefully, right. after it lands. <laughs> yeah, unless, you, unless you're like, unless you're like Tom you. Cruise, who, Thank by you. the way, is a huge fan of the show. I know he's watching oh, yeah. right he's now. He's watching right now. 43 <laughs> is the level. That's where we broke down from in the spring. That's where it probably gets back to over the next month or so. All right, there's a lot more fast money to come. Tom, here's what's coming up next. <laughs> Carvana shares enlightened as the stock makes a big U-turn. But Karen's not feeling the nirvana. How she's meditating on the stock. Next. Plus, Disney drama. One activist investor hoping to make some magic. But is the entertainment and streaming giant fine on its own? The details ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money Meme. Stock seeing massive gains once again as Wall Street braces for another short squeeze. Shares of Bed Bath & Beyond surging 50% today since the start of the week. The stock has quadrupled. It is now trading at just over $5 a share. BBBY still down 75% in the last two years. Carvana also um, with an off-the-charts move today, up more than 45% for the week. It's jumped to over 80%. But last year at this time, Carvana was trading at 186 bucks a share. Like Bed Bath & Beyond, Carvana is grappling with a lot of debt. Karen, you actually put a trade on. I did. I actually bought some Carvana puts. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be short this because obviously you can't know uh, what the downside is in being short Can you even game. get the borrow? I just bought the puts. I don't know. I'm saying, I don't know. That's right. How expensive I didn't think you it? could execute yes. on that. Yes. I mean, want. there's a big short interest. And so um, I just think, you know, we got a couple of events that could happen. And that's how they're t I timed the trade with March uh, 17th um, op options. Because we're going to hear from them February 24th, I believe. Their earnings, we're going to hear whether they got a uh, qualified opinion. They have a debt payment coming up March 1st. Those are a lot of very big events that will tell us whether or not they are considering filing for bankruptcy. If you think about the cash burn here and you think about the debt and you think about the news that the creditors are working together, they've agreed to work together, I mean, you know, it's telling you this is ridiculous and that a bankruptcy is likely. However, if I were Carvana, I would be, if I don't have a shelf already, I'd be trying to get that done as soon as possible. I don't know if you need a warning on that label, like, hey, things are really <laughs> bad, but still, we're going to try to sell stock. what AMC did every time. You know, like yes. Well, Hertz tried to do yeah. it, and right. then they couldn't. But that's what I would be doing if I were there. I'm sure they're looking into that. But I, we, I think we talk about these names, though. Yeah. We're talking about Best Buy. Here's the thing. For most of our viewers, like you just don't want to be trading options. And, and this is an $8 stock. If you look out to March expiration, the 7.5 puts are offered at $2.75. Okay, so think about that. You need a break-even. If you're going to buy those on March expiration to four seventy-five. Okay, so that's all the way down from $8. Just the risk-reward is not great. The strongest likelihood is that you're going to sit, you're going to own those things, you're going to just lose a little money every day. I mean, like that, I'm just saying, unless unless it just flushes, unless there's some news, you know what I mean? Well, we do have, do we have a couple of events. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. I'm just saying it's a tough way to do it. That is where it was yesterday. Though. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And that date, March 1st, takes into consideration 
the cure period. No, it doesn't. But they'll okay. have to announce we're not going to pay, or you know, but we do have this cure, or they'll pay. That's 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 news as well. Right. Okay. Well, one options trader is taking the other side of Karen's bet on Carvana. Mike Co has the action on that. Mike. Yeah, I don't know that they're necessarily taking the opposite side of what Karen's doing because we did see a lot of puts trading. Some of them apparently were hers. But uh, we did see that this was the eighth busiest single stock option today. Calls out pace puts by more than two to one. And the biggest call trade was a purchase of the 810 call spread. We saw 4,500 of those expiring in January. This is probably a short squeeze bet. You know, to Karen's point, the debt here, every single one of these bonds is less than 50 cents on the dollar. And some of those mature in about 30 months or so. So there's obviously a high probability of default baked in on the debt side. And I think that actually does speak to why you're seeing a lot of people buy puts in this thing as well with those catalysts upcoming. Yeah. What did you see, if anything, in in Bed Bath & Beyond today, Mike? I was just curious, given the huge surge in that as well. Yeah, I mean, this is this is basically the same story. Uh, you know, people are trying to use a little bit of capital to make leverage bets one way or the other. You know, one of the things that just came up here, you know, the question was, what's the cost to borrow these stocks? Of course, that's going to elevate the price of those puts uh, because, you know, people can use options to synthetically get short or uh, they can use a construction of options to borrow stock for a period of time. And you have to pay up to do that. But if you have catalysts that you've identified, I don't think you're going to see that those puts decay immediately uh, until those catalysts have come and gone. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike Coe for more Options Action. Tune into the full show. That is tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, more New Year's acronyms on the way. One of our traders is casting her picks all the way from the West Coast. We got those names ahead. But first, the pelts pressure how far one activist investor will go to be part of Disney's world. The details next when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check in the markets today. Stocks closing out in the green after this morning's CPI data showed inflation cooling further in December. The Dow jumping more than 200 points. The S&P climbing three-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq notching its fifth straight day of gains. One standout mover today, Taiwan Semi, shares up more than 6% after reporting strong earnings. The stock now up nearly 17% to kick off this new year. Turning now to the Disney showdown, activist investor Nelson Peltz is gearing up for a proxy fight against the entertainment giant after the company opposed his attempt to secure a seat on the board. Here's what Peltz told our David Faber this morning about why he was going after Disney's management. My goal is to reduce corporate overhead to a point that the company gets better. I'd like to see this company stop running like a matrix and start running like the companies we've been involved in, where they have real CEOs of businesses with real P&Ls, real cash flows, and really and real projections. So is Peltz right? Let's bring in Matt Bellany of Puck. He's the former Hollywood Reporter editorial director. Matt, great to have you with us. Thanks. Um, you know, for shareholders, they they got a great you know, terrific surprise with with Iger coming back. And and now they have this choice as to whether or not they want to allow Peltz on the board when they vote their proxy. And so I'm wondering if you think Peltz's arguments resonate when I'm sure a lot of Disney shareholders would like to see what Iger has to has to offer. Yeah, that's the bizarre thing here is because Iger was welcomed back as the savior of the company after the debacle with 
Bob Chapek. And now the honeymoon is really over. He's got to figure out how to deal with Nelson Pelton. What he's saying isn't wrong. Yes, they do need to reduce costs. They do need to look to a sustainability model for the streaming business, which, you know, Disney has had real problems there. They lost $1.5 billion in streaming last quarter. But it's not as if Iger doesn't know this and isn't making these moves already to do this. And a lot of the stuff that Nelson Peltz is saying, for instance, in the interview, he said, you know, streaming is an easy business. Well, it's not an easy business. And he may know that if he were a long term media investor, which he is not. So it's, it's a bizarre time for this. And I'm not sure the shareholders are going to go for this. What does uh, Disney have to lose? What does Iger have to lose, if anything, by saying, you know what, a lot of what Peltz is saying is are things that we want to do. We want to cost cut. We want to, you know, run this business efficiently, et cetera. And so, you know what, have a seat on the board. Well, if Iger, Iger is very used to kind of having discretion and having a board that has been very supportive of what he's done. And he's returned. I mean, he has returned this company's uh, re- returns very well over the years in his first tenure. So welcoming back a guy like welcoming a guy like Peltz onto the board doesn't seem like it would be positive for Iger in the sense that he wants to do what he wants to do. Now, I don't know that he um, he looks at this in I don't think Peltz looks at this as a long term play. He's looking at this as a short term play. He's saying, OK, they could cut costs. But what Iger needs to do is he needs to set a strategic vision. He needs to look at this company and say, okay, what are we going to be in 5, 10, 15 years, much like he did when he took over the company the first time, and set a real path here for the streaming age. It's very different than when he left as CEO in 2020, and he's got to figure that out. And I don't know that Nelson Peltz is going to help him on the strategic side at all. Hey, Matt, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. Do you think some part of this is to get back to kind of the core flywheel that is what makes Disney so successful um, and really uh, emphasize a little bit more on that parks and recreation business, which is the, the business that people invest around and delivers a dividend and, and is the magic kingdom? Yeah, absolutely. But it's interesting. One thing that Nelson Pels does not mention in his statements is the pandemic. I mean, Disney went through a very, very rough time during the pandemic when the parks were absolutely closed. The cruise business was closed. And now coming out of the pandemic, those businesses are going through the roof. And really, it's the streaming arena where they have to kind of figure out the strategic vision. And yeah, that flywheel is the flywheel. And he's right to mention that and say, get back to that. But they're not really, they haven't really gotten away from the flywheel. They just have to figure out the transition from a cable television universe to a streaming universe. Because for so many years, Disney was buoyed by the streaming, or sorry, by the cable universe and by owning ESPN. And that is not going to be the case for the foreseeable future. They have to figure out what the streaming future is. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Matt Bellamy of Puck. Um, you know, it's interesting, Matt mentioned that uh, Peltz, this may not be a long-term play for him. It's not long-term for Iger either. So we've got two <laughs> short-termers here trying to figure out what the strategic direction is for the company maybe five or ten years out. Um, what would you wish the company would do? Well, for, let me just say one thing. Sure. I don't think of Peltz so necessarily as short-term, right? He's been in some of right. these things for a while. Sure. It's not like he's looking at, oh, let's get Disney sold. Mm-hmm. Right? So um, I think he has some, some credibility there, and he's he's 
So one of the things I thought most powerful that he said, I have CEOs who I used to, you know, they used to be combatants and now they support him. So that's interesting. But I mean, the succession issue, obviously, it hasn't been great. Tom Staggs, I think for a while that was the, the heir apparent that for whatever reason, he left the company and then JPEG. I think they got to get that. And I think they can't do anything significant until they pay down some debt. They're really yeah. hamstrung by that. Yeah, I would just say the debt thing. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, listen, you know, Nelson Peltz, Bob Iger, they probably roll in the same circles. You, you, know, you know, I'm not sure you need to make a big case to get a board seat to kind of affect the change one way or another. And I don't see any reason why Bob Iger and, and the board need to give him a seat. You know what I mean? Like, have at it, you know, like go on CNBC with, with Mr. Faber every, every other week and, and talk to him about what they should be doing. They will hear it. And, and ultimately, it will either work itself into the broader investor base and some of the management thinking. Matt said the timing was curious. That's probably my word, not his. Right. I think the timing is perfect if you're Nelson Peltz because, listen, he turned 80 years old last summer. He's extraordinary in what he's done in his career. This is Moby Dick for him. I understand Procter & Gamble is probably twice the size of Disney in market cap, but Disney is Disney. And everything he said, Bob Iger knows, absolutely. We talk yeah. about the same type of stuff. But if, in fact, Disney starts to turn around, Nelson can say, I was the guy that turned around the Walt Disney Company single-handedly. And that's a huge pelt on the pelts. Pelt for pelts. Wall. Um, do you want pelts on the board as a shareholder? How will you vote your proxy? Uh, why not? Um, but I, I, I don't, for, he's as qualified as, as some of the other people on the board sure. in terms of media experience. He's certainly qualified in terms of how to drive governance and drive efficiency. Uh, Bob Iger is doing this anyway. I think the most, what I want to see Disney do right now is get to paying a dividend. That's a big problem with the stock. This is a stock that people own for that dividend. It's the kind of a stock people own long term for that income generation. And it, it implies free cash flow and profitability. Coming up. It's ladies' night. Karen Ooh, is here, and Julie Beal so will right. join us for the reveal of their 2023 <laughs> acronyms. Can you sing that for the background? Sure. One of them no, is fiery. You don't want to miss it. Plus, feeling lucky shares the Las Vegas Sands on a run these past few months. Will the good fortune continue? We've got new de details on the company's next empire. Oops, that was a clue. Stick around. Much more fast money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. It is ladies' night for acronyms. Karen is fired up for her big reveal, but she is going to have to chill out for a moment. <laughs> Let's head out to the West Coast and start with Julie Beal. Julie, what's yours? My acronym is CAST, C-A-S-T. And, you know, it's in reference to the fact that 2022 yielded, I mean, a lot of broken bones, basically, spiritually, emotionally, for all of us as money managers. <laughs> And, you know, I think that what does a cast do? It provides stability. So I'm looking for earning stability. Clearwater Analytics is a company that serves insurance. It serves mutual fund managers with their accounting. It has 98% retention. So it's able to really plan its business because it knows what's coming in the door. Really good stability. Azenta is a company that provides healthcare companies with cryotechnology. It's really advanced automated technology. They have a massive backlog for 2022. It gives stability to earnings, but they also do sample storage. So if you're a large biotech company and you have a lot of your DNA samples, you're not moving them. Once they're in cold chain storage, you're not moving them. So again, stability in that earnings. And then Silk Road Medical is a company that provides T-CAR technology, so it's helping treat carotid artery disease. It's totally novel technology. And, you know, rather than like slicing into your neck, 
it actually has this interesting technology that comes up through much less invasive and it pulls the plaque away from your brain because this is kind of close to the brain and you don't, it's bad if it goes up. I think, I don't know, I'm not a healthcare expert, but you know, hospital utilization has been quite low for a lot of these procedures. And so you can expect that to start to resume in 2023. So again, more stability and visibility. And the last one is Tyler Technologies. You know, when I think about software, I would rather have exposure to the government sector, particularly with strong ARPA funding. And if you look at Tyler Technologies through cycles, it actually does pretty well in a recession. Again, stable customer base. I'm glad you walked us through all of these companies. These are not companies you normally talk about. Oh, and your description for Silk Road, when you said slice into the net, I mean, I have to say, everybody here sort we of winced. We winced at the thought of slicing into a neck. So it was very no, um, not, right? memorable. Um, Julie, thank you for that. Karen, what is your yes. uh, red hot acronym? All right, going in a different direction. I like Julie's cast, though, and the theory behind it. But mine is flambe. Mm. And, uh, okay, so I worked hard on trying to come up with an acronym. So let's start with an unusual one, Foot Locker, which I've talked about from time to time. It is, you all know what Foot Locker is. It has a great balance sheet. They have Mary Dillon. And Mary Dillon, I think, is one of the greatest executives in the last, I don't know, decade at least. I think if she can come remotely close to doing at Foot Locker what she did at Ulta, which is not a totally dissimilar business, that we're going to see a lot of upside from here. So this is not a huge company for her. She sees something here. So I'm excited. They have a great balance sheet. The only negative of having her here is they probably won't do the giant buyback, but that's okay. I'm willing for her to spend because I think she's totally worth it. That's the first one. The second one, A, which is Alphabet. I think the, the pendulum of EPE has swung way too far here. And so, like Dan is saying, you know, we think that the fangs are going to actually lead us out. And so that's the A. The M is a little different one we haven't talked about in a long time, which is Mexico. There is a lot to like about Mexico. They have a very young population. Here's the thing that's really interesting. As there's deglobalization in the world, the U.S. can't do it all here, so, right? So they've got to look to Mexico. They are looking to Mexico, and I think that could be a huge positive for Mexico. In addition, they have a not insignificant energy business. So that's Mexico. And then the last one is B, which is Bank of America. You know, we talked about Mike, Mike Mayo on the other day. I agree with everything he said. This one's really cheap, very close to the customer. And I think there's a lot of value here. Maybe not tomorrow. But that's okay. This is for the year. So flambe. Flambe. Really flambe. Flambe. Yeah, it's flambe. But we'll let it go. We'll let it go. It's very memorable. By the way, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan will be on a Closing Bell tomorrow, so you won't want to miss that. Julie, great to see you. See you soon. Thanks for your acronym, CAST. So what do we have here? We have LAGS, we have Flambe, we have TSLQ, yeah. and we have, what was yours? See, you come to me, you remember everybody else's. <laughs> I mean, you probably remember Mills's, Don, but yeah, you know, Mojo. 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 Yeah. Mojo. All right. Yeah. Coming up. Mr. Mojo rising. Las Vegas Sands heading to Long Island. Will the multi-billion dollar project move the needle on the stock, that trade, and more next on Fast Money. Welcome back to Fast Money. The race to land the next big casino license in the Empire State is heating up. Las Vegas Sands today unveiling plans for an ambitious new site in Long Island. Our very own Contessa Brewer has got the details. Hey, Contessa. Hi there, Melissa. Yeah, Sands could shell out an estimated $4 bucks to build it if 
it lands the license. Sands signed an agreement for nearly 80 acres at the Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum on Long Island. It's proposing a hotel, spa, conference facilities, and of course the casino. Likely this would be the largest scale project to be proposed to New York for one of three downstate licenses. And it would be Sands' only U.S. casino since of course it sold off Las Vegas nearly a year ago. Its toughest competitors, existing casinos with no table games, so MGM Resorts in Yonkers, Genting's Resorts World in Queens near JFK. You've got uh, Wynn Resorts partnering with the related companies for a site at Hudson Yards in Manhattan, close to the Javits Center, of course, the Convention Center in New York. And Caesars pitching a casino in Times Square with SL Green Realty. New York Mets owner Stephen Cohen reportedly is pondering undeveloped land near City Field and Hard Rock, which just unveiled last year a fashionable new destination hotel in Manhattan. All this bidding for the license starts with a half billion dollar minimum fee. A feasibility study, Melissa, uh, predicts that gaming revenue could be $4.5 billion a year. My sources think that is wildly conservative. That's amazing. It's amazing how many casino sites there would be, in theory, if all this comes to fruition. I mean, isn't there a worry that there's cannibalization? (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's only three licenses to go, and there's a lot of not-in-my-backyard people who Uh are already gearing up for a fight against a casino. Right. Contessa, thank you. Contessa Brewer. Uh, Tim? LVS. Well, the, the, the ones you want to own in the casino space are the Macau-centric, which, of course, is LVS. It's also win. Guys win. And, and I, I think LVS, first of all, just to be clear, I actually sold upside calls out to March today over 60 bucks because, uh, again, the spike so far in the upside volume, I think I was well paid to do that. I also think at some point the valuations, which I think are really cheap, uh, at some point don't become uh, as compelling. But I, I tell you what, I think casinos look very interesting here on risk-reward and valuations that are significantly depressed, too recent multiples guys win is it, is it, well it, it was timing was the awful. w and dawn the dawn yeah dawn, i remember that one from, that was your acronym, acronym it was last a great year? song by uh, frank uh, the four dawn, seasons dawn go away oh, you're, you're no good you're for no me. good for me yeah. and apparently Tony, that was true <laughs> quickly he's right to sell calls they'll probably run up into earnings late january probably fail there well done by tim all right coming up the crypto costume that is turning heads why bitcoin is taking center stage at the miss universe pageant more on that and mm. final trades next Hmm. She's beauty. She's grace. She's Bitcoin. Wow. Uh, Miss El Salvador hmm. showing the crypto some love at the Miss Universe pageant with a currency costume and a Bitcoin staff. Last year, El Salvador became the first country to use Bitcoin as legal tender. The crypto briefly crossed the $19,000 mark today in its best day since November. Bitcoin has been up nine days in a row, the longest winning streak since July 2020. Yes to the dress. Well, imagine that's a good if she had point. a virtual dress. That's a good. <laughs> that would, I think, that would that, that would have been good for for Miss El Salvador. Maybe she would win. Uh, mm-hmm. Final trade time, Tim. Karen talked about Mexico, and I, she's. I don't want to give her a contract. She's about to do that. But Chile, <laughs> I like Latin America, too. Sorry, Karen. You want to go ahead? That's Karen. okay. You were probably great at keeping secrets when you were a little kid. Yeah. Mine's Mexico. Surprise. EWW. Like the ETF. Yeah, I'm famous moving GLD. All I can say is thank God BK wasn't enrolled in that. Can you imagine BK in that dress? He's watching right now. Shout out to BK. Really Win Resorts, Melms, W-Y-N-N. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.